Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. One thing that I'm really encouraged by amidst all the protests and civil unrest is how many white people seem to have genuinely woken up to the presence of systemic racism in American society. And next week, if all goes according to plan, it might be two weeks from now, we will be hearing a handful of these awakening stories, basically testimonies. So the order of this week and that uh, episode are a little bit mixed up, but I don't think that really matters The conversation this week assumes some kind of experience of seeing that racism in American life is more prevalent and more systematic than we were raised to believe. I mean, there's a handful of us who are maybe raised to believe that if we are white, but the number is is quite small. And what we're asking this week is what comes after that? And specifically, I want to ask this from a faith perspective. So in terms of my theology, my prayer or my church life, the way I see myself and my part in God's overall story, how is that affected and what would I maybe do next? So what would the next steps be? What are the consequences for some of these other theological and practical faith questions that we might ask? So to that end, I have two guests today instead of one. Ideally, Uh, Maybe we would just have two hours with my first guest, Jason Davison. 
Jason is an African-American pastor and former community organizer, and he's the associate pastor at Grace Seattle, the church where uh, Jaffrey and I attended for 10 years. But Jason, like most African-Americans these days, is exhausted, and I don't blame him. And those with any kind of public platform, which would include him as a pastor, are likely to be even more tired, more exhausted, because they are being asked so often and in so many contexts to speak to this moment. Of course, that represents a positive change. Nonetheless, we got to be respectful. Now, I'm very grateful that he agreed to join us, but I only ever asked him to do 30 minutes. We got maybe 35 out of him. So after we hear from Jason, friend of the podcast and theologian Sarah Lane Ritchie joins me to kind of pick up where we left off with Jason, as well as exploring her own thoughts as to where someone goes from here. Um, and uh, also a couple other thoughts about being white people um, living in this situation in the West in, in a society that is sort of colored by racism. No pun intended. So I think that's enough introduction. Let's get into it with Jason. Jason, thank you so much, man, for taking some time. I can only imagine how exhausted you and your wife are these days um, with your own work over the past decade or two being right at the center of everything that's going on, especially for Christian friends of yours. So really appreciate you taking the time. Glad to be here, Dan. And uh, as I told you over text, I really just have one prompt and we'll go where we go. Uh, What I'm interested in here, I think there's a lot of people who are posting about and there's a lot of resources at a sociopolitical level or like a policy level. So, all right, you've awoken to the reality of systemic racism. Here are next steps for you with your mayor. Here are next steps for you Uh, with some more books you could read about social justice. I want to ask the faith question. So you're a Christian in this situation, and you have awoken to the realities of systemic racism. What is your next step from a faith perspective? Where does your mind go when you hear that question? Uh, When I hear that question, I think a lot about what places in Scripture cover for the Christian mind about what happens when someone comes to the epiphany of evil around them or evil within them. And I think one of the great passages in scripture, and there's many, but is obviously Isaiah 6. Isaiah is pretty moral dude. Uh, he's got it all together. He probably was a part of the priesthood. Uh, he was had served under the king for years. And what does Isaiah 6 show us? It shows us that here is this guy who's morally upstanding. He does everything right. He goes into the temple and God appears to him and utterly just devastates the man. And he says, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm ruined. Because when he sees the righteousness and holiness of God, he realizes just how sinful he really is. He thought he was a pretty good dude. He thought he knew everything. Man, he was woke on so many levels. But then when he came, <laughs> when he came in contact with utter righteousness and justice and holiness, he wanted to tear his skin off. That's kind of what comes to my mind. In fact, the last year and a half, I had been studying at a local university. And even for me, someone who's well-read, who knows a lot of history, has been pretty active. There were some things I was reading just uncovering just the pervasiveness of white supremacy 
in the church in the Christian tradition and how underneath the guise of empire, uh, how the scriptures have been contorted. Even some of those things I'm reading, I'm just like, oh, crap. Like, oh, my goodness, I'm effed up. Like, this is <laughs> this is terrible. So if you're feeling that way, uh, you're listening to this podcast, you're feeling that way, you're in good company. There are plenty of people in the Bible, including Isaiah, who they began with a sense of, wow, I didn't realize how pervasive, how systemic this stuff is. And what do I do? So I can think of two ways to go from that and you choose. The first is really the idea of reclaiming scripture and in particular coming from a more like in the more black church tradition, the way that the Old Testament is used, which in my limited experience is quite different than the way that we use the Old Testament growing up white evangelical. The other way we could go is sort of a psychological angle, which I think there is a sense in which we want to believe just naturally as people. This is not a race thing, but we want to believe that a certain amount of righteousness in our own life will protect us from having to have these kind of experiences of our lives being turned upside down or some aspect of our lives being turned upside down and, and no longer being recognizable to us, which is very painful, but no amount of doing the right thing can protect you from that experience in your mind. Right. Right. So it's our psychological experience of righteousness and evil in the world is not correlated in this sense to how many good deeds we do in God's eyes or something like that. So either one of those directions I'd love to talk about. Yeah. Well, maybe we can hit them both uh, with regard to the former in terms of how the black church approaches these things. I think in terms of the, the moment prophetic moment that Isaiah speaks into our current context, it's this understanding that, wow, the evil that we understand is not just localized to me. I think what you understand from a lot of, not just the black church, but a lot of communities of color and different faith traditions, they understand immediately what the American evangelical might struggle to, which is that evil is not just personal. It's, it's cosmic. It's systemic. We understand this from the scriptures because the blood in the temple was shed, not just for the believer. It was shed for the land. It was shed for the temple, it was shed over the Bible. It had to cover every facet of the uh, covenant chosen people's existence. Uh, so when I think of from a black liberationist perspective, or just really from a biblical perspective, that's not captive to Western imaginations of scripture, the Bible clearly teaches just how bad we are individually and corporately that makes me think, oh, gosh, I'm on Duwamish land. The land itself is tainted. Oh, my gosh. The sin that I participate in is not just, well, I'm a good guy. I'm not racist. I didn't do anything. No, there are, the system we participate in is racialized. And that type of system that I participate, I'm complicit in, the Bible reflects that truth. So a phrase I heard a lot growing up white evangelical is like, Jesus conquers sin and death. Now, there are two ways you could think about sin and death in this context, individually or cosmically or systemically. So Jesus conquers sin and death might mean Jesus makes it such that my individual sins and the individual sins of every other human being can be forgiven. Jesus conquers death. My individual death and everyone else's individual death when they eventually die will be conquered and we will live again. 
that's not the only way of thinking about those words. And when I think about, for instance, um, the Christus Victor atonement model, which is the primary model in Eastern Orthodoxy, it was the primary model in Christianity up till at least the scholastic period and Anselm and stuff like that. That is a much more cosmic idea. Christ goes down to hell in, in that to defeat capital D death, capital S Satan, capital S sin, not just individualized, westernized, you know, whatever post enlightenment individual sin and individual death, uh, basically after Descartes. Right. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. And I wonder what's interesting is the, the black church movement in the States is primarily Protestant. So it comes after Luther and Calvin and this kind of more individualistic European idea, but does it actually end up using more of a crisis victor atonement model or I don't know, just, just in your experience, how does that play together? Yeah, I think it does. I think it does apprehend the same viewpoint from the, from the sense of a Christus victor. Um, But there's a lot more also this idea of notion of Christ in solidarity with the suffering. I'm not full on in the liberation camp, obviously, but if you read James Cone, he definitely sees this, that the people of God are those who are oppressed, those who are marginalized, and Jesus identifies himself with those people. And from a Black church perspective, I definitely think that in light of the Western Reformed tradition or just Protestant tradition blended with the in a syncretistic way, the African experience that was much more communal and obviously was coming from an oppressed uh, perspective, that's what maybe morphed the Black church to have a different vibe to it than the large, larger evangelical majority culture. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think, you know, you and I are, we, we have a lot of differences theologically that we've talked about them as friends and over lunch and stuff like that. Uh, and we left the church <laughs> that you pastor at over some of those differences. But uh, this is I one. have a voodoo doll, too. <laughs> you have a voodoo doll. Yeah, yeah you yeah. better make one for Soren now that he's in, you know, <laughs> you got to stamp out the evil in the younger yeah. generation or it will proliferate, Jason. <laughs> if we learned anything from the Canaanite conquest. OK, but uh, one thing that we uh, really do agree on is I think the the difficulty of a life of faith. So this is back to that second point, right? We will not be protected from having to think about suffering. And, you know, you know, some of our story from when we were still at Grace, our multiple miscarriages in your guys's family, you have two children with sickle cell anemia, um, this just like painful chronic situation. Uh, both you and I are aware that we live in an unjust world and that our faith in God does not save us from suffering. This is an interesting angle on that because, of course, George Floyd suffered and died. And of course, the black community has been suffering. And that is what the outrage is about. But there is also this suffering that we need to be willing to go through as people awakening to that. It's a different kind of suffering. It's a mental type of suffering. But it seems to me that unless you're willing to go through that, you don't you don't get to any justice on the other side and you don't even get to a full human experience of life without going through that kind of suffering. Right. Again, I don't want to wish that. I don't wish sickle cell or or infertility on people, but mm-hmm. I don't know where where do you go with that? Oh no, I mean Isaiah couldn't be used until he was brought to that moment of ruin wow. and realization. Oh crap, I'm done. I'm ruined. We can't be used. He couldn't be commissioned if it wasn't for that point of like, oh my goodness, I thought I was a good person. 
but then I've been participating in a system. I am unclean and those around me were all clean, unclean. So I think what you bring up psychologically is important. I think that I wrestle with this in my own life, again, with what you were just sharing uh, from both of us. There's a, there is an aspect of like, I don't really want to expose myself mentally to embrace what is deep and dark inside of me or in the world. And I think for a lot of people that I've talked to thus far the last couple of weeks and they want to go, what can I do? Oh, my goodness. I didn't know it was this bad. Is it really this bad? That type of thing. But I think you just ask a really great question. How, how do we do that? And I think that if we're going to say we're Christians and we believe in the God of the Bible, then we have to realize that part of our growth is being exposed to death being handed over the scriptures. Jesus Jesus was handed over. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 about being handed over unto death. And because I am captive to my own comforts and our white evangelical settings make a nice little comfortable box for us to put our spirituality in. And then all of a sudden pandemic hits and I'm like, oh gosh, I can't be saved by anything in my home. I've been stuck in my home for months I can't keep watching Netflix, you know. I can't save myself by leisure or by my job. My job won't save me. It's the same thing with this. It's uh, because of this pandemic, we've been afforded a place where we can now sit and we're captive to our screens that are telling us we still have a racial problem in this country. We still have to unseat whiteness as normative in our churches, in our criminal justice system, in our schools, Everywhere, we have to be aware that, man, I may not personally be racist, but I participate in a racialized system. And I need to call out my white friends. If I'm white, I need to call out my white friends that are saying slightly racist things. Or if I'm right talking to my homies, uh, my, my dudes, and I say something misogynist, I need to be calling myself out or others out, right? Yeah. So. That's an interesting uh, pandemic angle that I haven't heard. I've heard people talk about and I've thought about myself that the fact that a lot of people are out of work, that people have been sort of itching to get out of the house, uh, I think in a positive way has lent more energy to the protests. I think that was like just kind of good timing in that sense. But you're mentioning something else, which is that the pandemic for a lot of people is showing chinks in the armor of our ability to just entertain and distract ourselves and basically live just lives of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain, which by the way, as modern Americans, statistically, we have the best ability to do in almost the history of the world. So there's something there in like a chink in that armor. There's an opening for like, Oh shit. I don't know if you want to say any more about that, but that's just, you're the first person I've heard mention something like that. And I find that really interesting. Yeah, well, I do think it's a grace from the Lord that that it allows us this realization we cannot escape. I just love telling people that I'm a comic book nerd. I love comic books. I was thinking at some time in between my meetings today, I was going to read my my X Men comic books here, but like I have like this awesome X Men collection. But how many times can I read X Men, <laughs> you know, to to insulate myself from the fact right. that my kids are hurting or that I have to think through, oh gosh, um, how do I navigate a medical system and advocate for my kids who don't have the neat stuff they need because of racism in this country in the medical field? 
that I can't get the research. I can't get the stuff that I need to help alleviate my son's pain. We don't know how to fix it. There's something wrong with our world. There's something wrong with my own heart. Again, I don't have anything further to, to deepen that thought other than to say that I think it allows us, it's a grace that allows us to realize there is, there's holes in my whole world. My yeah, world is yeah. coming to an end. Yeah, people might not, I don't know how much people know, but sickle cell anemia is one of those um, medical conditions that lays bare some of the racial inequities in healthcare because it mostly affects black people and it gets a lot less funding. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, you just look at the numbers. But I want to shift back to scripture for a minute here because you do have such a better handle on it than I do. Uh, and I think that something that's interesting about the black church versus the predominantly white church is in our inability as wealthy and insulated white Americans to actually empathize with where the authors of scripture are coming from, Old Testament and New Testament, right? Like there are very few books of the Bible that are written from places of objective privilege. I mean, if you think Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, which I don't think he did, uh, then he would be writing from a place of privilege. Technically, David is king while he's writing some of the Psalms, but he's also constantly under attack. Uh, the kingdom of Judah that he is leading is is very small compared to Assyria and Egypt and all that stuff. I'm, I'm trying, I'm doing my best here with my uh, biblical history. And then great. in the New Testament, forget about it. I mean, there's no cultural power until 200 years or so after the last book of the New Testament is written. These are people who are persecuted either literally or at least culturally at any point. And here we are in our comfortable, you know, globally rich as all get out reading these books. Right. Not the case with the with the black church in America. So what do you get biblically, contextually in that community that most of us have been missing out on? Yeah, that, it's hard to answer that question for such a general population. Sure. People, but I would say that overall, I think the general bent is different because you are coming from a place of understanding theology from below, right? You're, you're understanding theology from a place of suffering that brings you, that acutely draws you into a, a place with the author um, and with his audience that's suffering. We've been going through the book of Hebrews for the last, I don't know, nine, 10 months at Grace. And, you know, it's a powerful backdrop to that book. And that if, if you read carefully sections of that uh, narrative um, that's immensely theological is that he has, the author has the, the stones to tell these people, Hey, I know you guys were victimized and persecuted and you lost all your property and stuff again. Uh, don't go back to Judaism, stay with Jesus. Why? Well, cause eventually he's going to come and save you. Like, I'm like, I don't want to lose my house again. I don't yeah. want to be out of work again. And you're telling me that the atonement is the way out, like faith that Jesus is going to show up and save me underneath Roman oppression. But that's where a lot of the passages and scriptures are and the scriptures are. Uh, I just got off the phone with someone and he's been out of work, uh, seen rejection letter after rejection letter and is talking about clinging to Jeremiah 29, a whole backdrop of Jeremiah 29, verse seven. I know the plans I have for you. In the American church, uh, mainstream churches, that this is this sounds great. Yes, of course, God is good plans yeah, for right. you, right? The all-time best out of context verse, yeah. Right, but if you actually read it in context, Jeremiah is saying, "Hey, I know you guys really like Hananiah's message, which is 
this pandemic is only going to last a couple more months and we'll, we'll be in phase four eventually. Jeremiah is like, no, we're going to be in 70 years of pandemic. God has plans for you though. Hang in there. Yeah. <laughs> it's completely yeah. different when you actually go, yeah, I, I can, I can vibe with, with that because to be black in America is to constantly feel like you're being hunted like the people in the book of Hebrews, right? It's constantly to be suffering and to know that at any moment your life could be snatched from you and you didn't do anything wrong. I can, I can vibe with Job then, right? It's to be a alien in a foreign land, right? Like Jacob wrestling with God. These are things that not just the black church, but churches globally who are suffering can apprehend than those of us, myself included, who are just very live very comfortable American lives, and again going back to my my thought is again the pandemic makes us go oh right right none of this crap is actually means anything it's it's meaningless which you know if Solomon wrote it or whoever wrote it this is a person writing from a position of privilege saying all this crap is meaningless yeah whoever did write ecclesiastes was wealthy enough to not want for anything materially yeah, yeah. and to go and to go this doesn't mean anything anymore what's the point of life that that actually also makes me think of if we are identifying with scripture then there is an emotional aspect to to that and uh, one of these big divides you see between white and black protestantism is that the white Protestantism is very suspicious of emotion, a lot of Northern European kind of vibe, right? And very and if we get too emotional, then we're straying from reason. And the black right. church, you know, the preacher is stirring up and we're amening and we're clapping. But what if that's part of it? Is that if the scripture is just giving you the rules, but you can't identify with where these people are coming from as much, then your emotion's not as involved. But if you can identify then it's it's closer to your lived story, your lived experience. Exactly, exactly. Um, and for me, serving at a largely white church, I constantly wrestle with this dynamic of how to function. a Presbyterian church, no less. Yeah, it, it's a, it's an odd thing because, and I, I, I've heard nothing but good feedback. The folks have been very loving and accepting, but there is something mentally to to work through in terms of, am I perpetuating stereotypes? Cause I'm just going to start shouting in a minute here. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty loud. Um, uh, am I cerebral enough? Am I going through the text? You know, am I coming from the original language? Am I thinking in theological reform categories uh, for my audience? It's a terrible balance, but it's a part of unfortunately navigating for black people, church or not, where you feel like I've got to prove myself. I have to establish my Imago day. I've got to establish my personhood because this culture is founded on seeing me as three fifths person. Um, and so I think for being black in America for back to our original question, if we are a Christian and we come to this realization, I have to realize I'm not only effed up, but the world is. And then secondly, man, I need to repent because I've been walking alongside of my black brothers and sisters, not even caring about the suffering or what it feels like to feel like you're hunted or that you're a threat or you're less than. That I have to sit a couple of days ago with my kids and ask them, how are you guys seeing all this? Are you concerned about the police? Because my kids shouldn't be concerned. We live a very comfortable life. And my kids tell me, no, as I get older, I'm pretty sure 
that this is going to be a real thing for me right now. I'm in at home, but as I get older, I'm afraid that the police could hurt me. That's the type of yeah, thing. Once you they don't get want. old enough to be physically threatening, basically, or something like that. I think for the Christian evangelical, it's a time for repentance. After that realization, repentance, and then commission. And commission in Isaiah, right, is to go for, forward with the good work of saying, hey, this is a white supremacist society. You know, this is an anti-black society. I actually like a lot of intellectuals are using that term more. Um, anti-black society where what's black is is aggressive. It's less than, it does not worth as much. And I need to call that out in my spheres of influence. I may not be called to go talk to the mayor. I may not be called to go and help revamp curriculum in public schools, but I am called with my friends, neighbors, and family members, my, my racist aunt and say, Hey, Aunt, Aunt Shirley, what you said was not cool. You know, or here's why they're protesting. So um, we only have a few minutes. My last question here, I apologize if it's somewhat convoluted, but I think there's a moment here that uh, those of us who have been so privileged, there's more to come basically. And this is maybe a moment of preparation. And here's why I say that. We also live in a society that is inherently biased with our use of the climate and the earth's resources and it's biased towards the global South and the poor. And that is also going to be very hard for people to get their heads around. The, you, you could probably come up with more, but climate change is, is, is the one that I think is looming nearest on the horizon where it is a, it is a similar thing to wake up to that reality as it is to wake up to the reality of uh, systemic racism of like, Oh yeah, all this comfort that we have in America <laughs> is at a cost. And I'm wondering if coming from the black American community, what can we learn from black Christians who have basically been able to live with ambiguity and tension like that uh, much better for the last two, 300 years than we have? Like, like I, sometimes I think that white Christianity's big cultural drive is to reduce ambiguity and increase certainty and reduce anxiety and whatever, right? To just make it, that's, that's how you get a civil religion is it has to be pretty comfortable. Otherwise it doesn't become a civil religion. People won't, people won't adhere to it, right? It's too hard. So what can we learn from that community as we have maybe more of these moments to come of reckonings and ambiguity? And, and, and I'm, I'm talking long enough. You understand what I'm saying? I think that for black Christians in the black church today, we are at a different place than we were 120 years ago. So I think in some ways we participate, in many ways we participate in a system along with the rest of Americans that we kind of have turned our natural resources into what its utility is rather than my covenantal uh, relationship with it. As, as we understand from the scriptures that humanity, male and female, were we're not supposed to dominate the uh, the natural resources, but they were in a covenantal caretaking role with creation. So, you know, I, I think that in some ways the black church um, is, an, is just as complicit as the white church uh, contemporary. But I do think that the foundations of the black church in terms of its sense of understanding suffering and groaning, I think chiefly Romans chapter eight, where it talks about, there's three types of groaning in that passage, beginning in verse 18, that 
the sons of God groan, but it's not just the sons of God that groan. It's the natural order. The cosmos groans. And if there's anything the black church understands, it's that inaudible groaning, that groaning that comes from the spirit that speaks for us and prays for us when we don't know what to pray. This idea that um, that comes back to indigenous cultures in Africa, indigenous America, South America, and probably in Europe, I, I just don't, I'm not quite certain, but those indigenous cultures that we come from and that the black church owes so much from understood that the world, the natural world was not something to destroy or to uh, use for its own utility. There's no such thing as private property in the way Western Europeans thought of it. And so they would understand this idea of the cosmos groaning. And I think that we as Christians in the year 2020, when the chickens come home to roost and we realize that, oh, crap, we've got another one of these things happening. And it's not around race or gender, but it's around how we use the natural world. I think that we need to recover this idea that the world is groaning and that we have we need to repent like Isaiah and go, crap, I'm complicit in the exploitation of people groups, but also the natural world. And out of that repentance comes the commission and responsibility to go and serve, to be about justice, to bring Sabbath to the to the land. I think it's in Leviticus where the Lord orders that the land itself have a sabbat- sabbatical. We don't do that. I'm thinking like, how can I continue to kill cows so I can have a juicy hamburger? Yeah, right, yeah. Right? Anyway, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I would just say that the gift of the black Black spirituality is understanding groaning and understanding that that groaning will be met with an ultimate redemption of not just my individual spirituality, but the spirit, but the, but the world itself. Can I ask you one more? Sure. Okay. Cause this is where you're, you've made me go also convoluted. I'm going to do my best to phrase it as I go. There's a kind of a triumphalism. There's a triumphalist Christianity right? Exclusively in America, this is in white churches because black churches, you couldn't sustain such disbelief, such cognitive dissonance. There's obviously, we obviously have not been triumphant. A triumphalist Christianity calms our anxiety by basically giving us a meta narrative. We are a part of uh, the good team and the good team has essentially won. And there's a little cleanup after the battle to do, but basically just live your life, love your neighbor, and then you get your mansion in heaven afterward. I'm Obviously, I'm reducing it. I think some people worry when they start dealing with stuff like systemic racism or climate change. This is so massive. When will my cognitive dissonance end? When will my anxiety go down? Nobody can live in a perpetual state of atonement and guilt and whatever, just at a mental level. But I think that to the and I know you're not a full-on liberation theologian, and I don't. That's not what I'm asking here. But to the extent that that meta narrative, that understanding of our faith in which we are part, if it can shift away from triumphalism toward a more of a liberationist idea, such that the world is groaning, we are not there yet. Uh, we are in the middle of this thing, and it is quite bad. But here's our role in that. If you can actually reframe your story. I think you can take some of the moment to moment pressure off of yourself of like just the crushing weight of the guilt and the whatever and can be like, no, 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 I'm actually just going to change my perspective here. I'm in a groaning world. 
here's my place in it. This is how I will find meaning. In that sense, man, the black church has a lot, I think, to show us because that's basically what all black church leaders and ministers have. You, you, you've been in that place. That's your world. That's what it made me think. And I don't know if you have any, any reaction to that. Yeah, I, I think that if, if I'm being true to African-American spirituality that is a Christian side of things, I, I think that we don't want triumphalism, right? Because that is equated with empire. And we see what empire from Catholicism to the Puritans to uh, the Anglicans, what that did for indigenous people globally. But I think that a scriptural tradition of triumphalism is that we triumph through suffering. Our Savior, whom we follow, triumphed and he slayed while he died on the cross. Um, he killed the hostility between Jew and Gentile, black and white, right? He killed it on the cross, Ephesians 2.15. And I think, yes, the, the, for indigenous uh, cultures that have seen oppression who are Christian or are from other faith communities, they understand that suffering a lot more than theology done in the context of empire and in the context of comfort. So I think that the liberationists bent to my own theology, even though I'm not fully in that camp. Like I, I think that the gift of it is this understanding that we will one day be redeemed. And until then, we triumph by our sacrifice, by our suffering and following our suffering Lord. And if there's anyone we need to be listening to, it's not the people in the empire. It is people who are suffering. And I think that what we're, what I think the dilemma and the task of the American white evangelical church is, are we really going to listen to Jesus in the voice of people who are suffering? Are we going to listen to the voice of Jesus in communities that really push our sense of orthodoxy? They, you know, Jesus listened to people who push the boundaries of orthodoxy. He triumphs the prostitute, right? He loves the Samaritan. He makes them the good guy. And for, so I've been saying it this, this to grace and, and our leadership, we've been talking about this is that, you know, theology done in the empire situates us as the hosts of God's goodness. We're the good guys, and we do everything through our church, through our safe little church ministries. How about instead we be guests, Luke chapter 10, go in to people's homes and accept anything they set before you and eat it, right? We are not we are not the, the chosen people. We're Gentiles, actually, right? We're guests, not hosts. We've seen what the, the host theology has been, that people will come in and set up hundreds of years ago in South America seminaries and say, well, if you are of lighter skin, you are more likely to pass through seminary. If you're a darker skin, we're not sure you can be regenerated. And those types of theologies have passed all the way down to seminaries in the 21st century. So I'm going long, but I just want to say that I think that the, the, the gift that we have from oppressed communities is that not that, you know, Cohen would say that to be black is to be, you know, the chosen people. I'm not saying that. I'm not preaching an ethnocentric gospel. But what I am saying is that we can listen to those who are marginalized, Christian or not, for from listening to those people, we will hear from the voice of God. Well, I know I speak for everyone when I say uh, we wish we didn't have to respect your time in this very exhausting period for uh, aware black Christians, but we are going to respect it. And I thank you, Jason. Genuinely, this conversation is refreshing my own 
faith in my own ability to conceive of myself as within the Christian tradition, because uh, that has been hard in some of the more traditional, you know, white, white centered lenses recently. Um, so, man, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Yeah, I'm honored to be asked. So thank you, Dan. I want to say right now at, at this kind of midpoint, um, while it's fresh in your memory, uh, just how, uh, I don't know, wise uh, Jason is, that two of his recent sermons are in the show notes. I will mention this again at the end of the episode, um, but he really is a hell of a preacher. Leaving his preaching was one of the biggest losses Jaffrey and I experienced when we decided to leave our church. So check those out. Uh, and before we get into it with Sarah Lane Ritchie, for the latter half of the episode, I just want to remind you about the Patreon campaign. It is two exclusive episodes per month, at least, as well as access to the patron-only Facebook group uh, and a few other smaller benefits. It's five bucks a month. And if you really can't afford that, there is a sliding scale. You can email me. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Um, no, no long ad here. Let, let's keep uh, let's keep it going on this topic. But Patreon.com slash Dan Coke, or you have permission pod.com. Click become a patron if you're interested in that. Okay, we'll get into it now with Sarah. I think I need to start introducing you as regular contributor Sarah Lane Ritchie. <laughs> yeah, except every time that we're talking together, it seems that we're talking about a completely different topic. Like, true. Like there doesn't seem to be a lot of consistency amongst the things that we end up discussing. Yeah. So far, we've got psychedelics, the coronavirus, and now <laughs> systemic racism. I know. Although not real, although not really systemic racism. But is this how people become public intellectuals? Da, da, da. Yeah, <laughs> thought like, leaders. Capital forbid. T, capital L. God forbid. They just start spreading their like, theories about whatever. Then I've been a public intellectual since I was about ten. So what I want to do with you is mostly just continue where we left off with Jason. So basically, you know, we wanted to respect his time. He brought up some really interesting stuff. Some of those are areas I'd like to just keep going down with you. And then a couple other things are things that you and I spoke about over Messenger that are also related. So so your take on like, what do you do after you come to this sort of racial injustice awakening from a faith perspective? So since you had the opportunity to listen to the, my conversation with Jason, let's just start there. Mm -hmm. Maybe give me your biggest takeaway or the thing that sort of got your wheels turning the most in my conversation with him. Yeah, no, it was a great conversation. I really appreciated it. And I learned a lot as well. I think honestly, like one of the key takeaways for me was, gosh, it has really got to be so hard for white men to get their heads around systemic racism. And I found myself, um, and the reason I say that is that I found myself understanding um, at an intuitive and experiential level so much of what he was talking about because I'm a woman and and not to the degree that he was that he is alluding to or explicitly discussing in some cases and I would never want to compare my experience as a white woman with black experiences uh, male or female but I so much of what he was talking about I was like oh gosh yes exactly I know exactly what that's about and I just I was I was almost like feeling sympathy for white men which is not the sort of thing you're used to hearing these days but like I was actually 
feeling quite a bit of sympathy for white men because if I hadn't had the sorts of experiences that I've had in the evangelical church or just, you know, being a female in academia, like I, I would probably have a much harder time getting my head around the idea that systemic racism is even a thing. But because I know what it's like to experience gaslighting and I know what it's like to experience having to overcompensate as a female because you know that the bar for you is going to be so much higher for than for, than for people who don't happen to be women. I really understand those elements of what it's like to be marginalized in a certain population. So I think that was the kind of the biggest takeaway for me was that it was just like how much of it I could actually relate to. It allowed me an in to his experience and his sort of, and, and the things he was saying. That's really interesting. Let me speak as a white man here for a minute. I'm curious about this because it seems to me that there are two ways of thinking about the difficulty of recognizing systemic racism. And one of them is real. And one of them I think is not real. The one that I think is not real is that somehow the data is ambiguous or something like that, right? So mm-hmm. my brother is adopted. We adopted him the day he was born. He's half black. Mm-hmm. He grew up in a very – quite a white community, plenty of Asians. And I actually had – I've had mixed race friends my entire my entire childhood through, through high school, uh, you know, growing up in the Bay Area. Right. But, you know, our actual town, Los Gatos, was quite white. And he went to public school and I went to private school. Anyway, we had a different kind of um, school experience. And we were also eight and a half years apart. So, like, I didn't know the data, right? Like, I didn't – I grew up white in a white culture. I wasn't – I didn't go to black church where sort of this stuff was in the water. You know, I went to a white church. So when I was presented with the data, I was shocked. You know, even for someone who had been in a family with a black person – Mm-hmm. It still shocked me when I actually saw the numbers. And I don't remember what the first stuff was, but the f- relatively recent thing is reading Divided by Faith by Christian mm-hmm. Smith and Michael Emerson. Mm-hmm. And just the there's a, like two chapters in a row that are just like f-ing sledgehammers, yep. you know. And, and so that part of the narrative that like the data is ambiguous, I think, is not true. Mm-hmm. And so there's nothing about being a white man that should make it harder to recognize unambiguous evidence than being anything else. The part that I think is harder is the kind of blind spot of being in the sort of uh, top of the food chain, if you will, sort of the cultural power food chain, the way information is presented food chain, the way entertainment is presented, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the way women are depicted in films food chain, like basically being catered to because our group has the most disposable income And most, uh, especially historically, I mean, probably more so in the 50s and 60s than today. But basically the way that everything we do in in Western culture today is catered to white men, at least primarily, and Mm -hmm. certainly was built that way. Um, You know, when the first broadcasting network started, when the big radio station started, whatever. Right. Because we're the ones controlling the purse strings Mm -hmm. and with more money. So that part of it is real. It's a little bit of a Truman Show moment, like mm-hmm. a watered down Truman Show where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, this mm-hmm. was all for me and it mm-hmm. maybe didn't need to be or like now I've been pampered my whole life. That part is real. OK, so I want to push back on that a little bit. OK, so I think we get into trouble anytime we assume that there is like this objective data usage um, happening okay. um, or fact kind of 
I think if anything, what we've learned in the era of Trump is that as obvious and blatant as we might consider these facts to be, there are those with very large platforms and very loud megaphones who will find a way to misrepresent numbers and data to paint a different narrative. So yes. we might be able to sort of go to an academic conference and agree that these certain fig- these certain figures are unambiguous, but you will then have people on Fox News or on Twitter or your Uncle Joe who is able to spin those or twist those numbers so that they paint a very different picture and that if that picture configures with the, the lived experience that you have where there might be two black people in your entire community and they're yeah. doing fine... Then, then or you it, see clips of Morgan yeah. Freeman, deni- you know, downplaying yeah. systemic racism or whatever. Right. Okay, exactly. that's true. We'll meet in the middle here. I'll modify and say for a certain kind of white man that is uh, steeped in a con- sociopolitically conservative milieu, there are right. even more barriers to seeing the data for what I, I think it pretty clearly is. Mm-hmm. It was easier for me being in a more liberal milieu. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was not constitutionally uh, opposed to it. Nor was I looking up to figures who had a profit incentive to downplay it for decades prior or something like that. So, yeah, that's true. Okay, point taken. I mean, it is also the case that, okay, yes, yes, people who are perhaps willing to acknowledge the facts as we would understand them might have an easier time of kind of come to grips with at least the objective problem, uh, but they might struggle more with the experiential part. But I'm, part of it, I think, is certainly that they would have to recognize their own kind of uh, position at the top of the food chain. But I think there's also a thing going on where where they feel as if this recognition that there are problems and that they are privileged in some way f- makes them feel like th- like two things, that they are personally culpable for every racist incident that's ever happened. They feel blamed so that people are almost in- instantly put on the defensive. Um, I've, I've noticed like it's really difficult to have a conversation about race with a white man without him being like instantly defensive, like I'm not racist, you know? And then there's a conceptual confusion about what it means to participate in racism. Um, yes. So people, a lot of people still think that you're not racist if you don't consciously recognize and approve of racist, um, overtly racist actions and statements, when that, that's not what systemic racism is. And then the third thing is that many white men, especially uh, like middle America, evangelical white men, let's just take that kind of stereotypical, stereotypical like Trump voter, for example, many of those white men actually do feel whether or not this narrative is correct, they really do feel that they are being disadvantaged today, right? So when they turn on the news, they tell they, you know, they see stories about college, college admissions processes, disadvantaging you know, white teenage boys or something like that, or they experience themselves as having worked in a factory for 40 years and then it closing and them having no job to go to. So they're economic hardships. And they see, uh, for example, initiatives elevating people of color or, or sort of trying to remedy past uh, injustices against people of color. And they see themselves as still struggling to make a minimum wage salary. So there are many narrative factors that create a, like a sort of psychological resistance to acknowledging that someone's experience could be so incomprehensibly bad uh, when it's just not what they're what these men are experiencing. Agree on all of that. But we're going to move on because I'm more interested today in talking about <laughs> sort of the faith angle. No, but it's mm-hmm. helpful. No, I appreciate that. But this is a good place to start. So you've mentioned and you've now brought up the personal slash systems divide, right? right. So right. that there's personal racism and there are racist outcomes of systems that don't, for instance, require any racism on an individual level, like, for instance, redlining 
bank mortgages, right? The, the mortgage company is operating on a profit motive. It is an economic decision for them. They, they needn't hate black people. They just believe that black people won't pay their mortgages. And so they won't mm-hmm. give them right. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that's an example of no personal racism need be there. And still you can have a racist outcome. Mm-hmm. Now, what I'm interested in is theologically lived faith wise. You come to that realization where does that show up in your theology, in your church experience? Let, let's start mm-hmm. with that. What else might you apply that distinction of the personal versus the systemic yeah. to? What yeah. comes from that? Yeah. Oh, gosh, there's so much here. There's so much here. One of the reasons that I find this conversation so interesting is because it is it offers such a it's such a stark example of how defensive people get when you challenge their complicitness or their complicity in racism, because it demonstrates how firmly they believe that that for them to participate in a social system or a culture is to be personally willing those things to happen that are happening in that culture or that system. Right. And so what, 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 what we see happening is that it is elevating. They see, they experience themselves as being first and foremost, an individual who makes personal choices. And that is the litmus test on every issue that, that you could, that you could discuss with them. You see this, from cradle to grave within evangelicalism, right? So the emphasis on personal salvation, I think this is probably the most clear example for me. I mean, how many of us who grew up in evangelical churches remember what it was like to be four years old and feeling like you needed to pray a salvation prayer because if you didn't and you died, then you would definitely burn alive in hell for eternity. Um, I know that I'm not the only one that found myself praying the salvation prayer like every night for like seven years or something because I was so terrified that I hadn't done it correctly the first time. And then I would create these really elaborate, like sort of like footnotes to my prayers. So I was like, I would pray the prayer and then I would be like, okay. And God, if it didn't, if if anything I said wasn't quite right, or if I didn't mean it enough, please know that I meant to mean it enough. And that like, you know, I don't, I really don't want to go to hell. I really do want to be with you. And then if I'm not doing it in the right way, then just please put fill in the blank with the right way to do it. And then like, well, I'll be good. And so it was like, I felt like God was like holding me personally accountable, not only for like salvation, but like for the particular packaging <laughs> in which I was like approaching that issue. Um, and so I think, yeah, so I think the the, the sort of the nature of salvation is a, is a, is a huge one. Well, so um, let's, let's go, go deeper into that. So what does non-individual salvation right. look like from a theological perspective? So, okay, this is really interesting. So I'm not in an evangelical church anymore. Um, and for years and years now, I've participated in what we would call mainline churches of various, of various stripes, um, different forms of Presbyterianism, more or less. And what's really interesting is that Progressive churches, mainline churches, haven't quite gotten a handle on how to talk about an, the importance of an actual, like, personal relationship with God, they haven't really gotten a handle on that because they, they, they don't want to say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe or it doesn't matter how you act or you live. But they're also so wary of saying, well, if you, you know, don't believe, then you're definitely not going to be with God in eternity or something. You know, so they, they really want to stay away from the evangelical emphasis on heaven or hell and the dichotomies like heaven or hell right. or like with God, without God, saved, not saved. Um, they really want to stay away from those dichotomies. But what's happened in the liberal churches is that they've moved much more towards an emphasis on um, community and corporate social justice action and sort of, um, they're very, very good about talking about like the welfare of the, of the whole, about the gospel 
gospel being expressed in words, not only words, but also deeds, and this being expressed at the level of society and culture, not only within your homes and your families and your, yeah. your own life. The theological um, move there is to recontextualize salvation, mm-hmm. at focusing more on Jesus's language of the kingdom of heaven. Yes. And, and then, of course, the here and now aspect of that, like in the mm-hmm. Lord's Prayer. On right. earth as it is in heaven, being a mandate for today, mm-hmm. that that's what our job is as the church. That's like a here and now version of mm-hmm. non-individual, more corporate focused right. salvation. Yes, exactly. But I think the the problem, one of the problems here is that we haven't found a great way of recognizing the importance of both of these angles. With, yeah. So it's like we're, we're, we don't do super, we don't do all that well in churches with recognizing the, the, the cosmic whole creation nature of salvation, right? We don't That's recognize- That's the next step, right? Yeah. Yeah. We don't do a very good job of articulating that while also recognizing the importance of personal meaning, existential questions, one's relationship, relational kind of like development with God, spiritual formation. We're not great at holding these two intention. We tend to sort of emphasize one at the expense of the other, where you have evangelicals who are like, literally the only thing that matters, what the gospel is, is that you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ has died and risen from the dead and you are going to you you know you confess them with your mouth and you will be saved you will you'll be saved and that that is the gospel the gospel is you being personally saved from hell and then for more liberal churches you have a much broader emphasis on salvation being corporate and holistic and involving all of creation but you also can kind of lose some of the spiritual impact when you do that so there's an interesting parallel there i think yeah. with sort of like the, the systemic racism conversation enter Richard Rohr into that vacuum, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Right. So here's a guy with more progressive theology and certainly sociopolitics, but a huge emphasis on the personal contemplative thing. And he has exploded in both in both circles, really. I don't agree with every single approach that Rohr has or every single single thing he said. He's not Mm -hmm. a guru of mine or anything like that. But broadly speaking, I think he's a really helpful, corrective for mm-hmm. both people or both groups, as you sort of described to them. And yeah, hopefully and there there's are, more to come of that. Yeah, there are. There absolutely are. I mean, another one, I just recorded an interview session thing um, with John Bell, who's the leader of the Iona community, one of the co-founders of the Iona community here in Scotland. And he's another one who's hugely proactive in social justice and theologically motivated social justice actions, but also is like one of the co-founders of one of the most profound spiritual communities. Like, oh, it's like kind of like quasi monastic communities on the planet. And so there are people who are doing this really well. I want to keep going with this individual versus systemic divide. I have three more things I'd like to apply it to. And then you can pick which one we start with. Uh, Sin. Mm -hmm. which is related but not the same as salvation, Mm -hmm. evil, and death and suffering. So where would you like to start? I think this is a really interesting rubric we can apply to each of those three things. Right, right, right. Well, let's start with sin. Sin's interesting. Yeah. So, of course, the personal view of sin is that if if sin is only individual – actually, this is interesting. It's not as clear to me that there can be corporate sin, Mm -hmm. systemic sin – as mm-hmm. it is clear to me that there can be systemic racist outcomes right. because sin seems to actually require some kind of willing participation in it. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's the place to start. That right. seems like a wrinkle. And that's interesting. This is something I, I, that I actually wrestle with. I'm not done processing this one because 
on one hand, we have the Hebrew scriptures. We have the Old Testament, right? And we have the God of Israel dealing with the nation of Israel as a collective, as a whole. We see people essentially being rewarded or punished Obviously, we, well, we, could, we could do a whole biblical, biblical studies analysis on what we mean by that. But like, we have a whole nation being held accountable for things that couldn't possibly have been willful, intentional actions done yep. by every single Israelite man, woman, and child. And right? that's all over the Old Testament. Absolutely. This the is prophets, so. So, yeah. so we do have this sort of sense of collective sin um, and participation in collective sin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And I think that you actually touched. I mean, there were there were aspects of this that were kind of coming out in your in your conversation that you had in the early on the podcast where you guys were you guys were discussing how the black church is actually really good about sort of reclaiming um, these sorts of dynamics that we get in the Old Testament that are not really talked about today. And, um, the, but the, the sort of collective sin is one of those, is one of those areas. Now that is like, I recognize that as an enormous part of our biblical tradition, but I struggle to connect that with like, with, 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 with what we know about how human cognition works. Right. So it just is the case that we are molded and shaped by the communities and structures that we are born into. None of us chose to be born. Yeah into the context that we are. You did not choose to become, to be born a white male. Like you just are. And but I would have. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and you also did not choose your, the developmental structures in which you grew up. You know, you did not, right. your, 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 the way that you understand the world, the way that your cognitive processes naturally discriminate, that the they naturally I speak, et yep. cetera, et cetera. Yeah. 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 And the way that you learned is a combination of it, like natural cognitive predispositions and sociocultural factors that sort of impact what sorts of things, like how our discriminatory processes will end up manifesting themselves. We don't have a choice here. We all discriminate and have biases and none of us choose the context in which we're going to be born, which shape the way that those biases and discriminatory processes are manifest. Right. Yeah. And so when we talk about collective sin, I find it really challenging because when I talk to my dad about racism and he says, I really just don't think of myself as being racist. And he says, I truly don't. Like I, I engage with people. He's like, I'm, I've lived and worked in, in South Asian countries for, you know, like decades. Like, and I, like my colleagues, my best friends are people of other color. And so it's like, I just don't, I just don't experience myself as being like racist. How can I be held accountable? And what's happening there, I think is that we are almost like overlaying our like hyper individualistic evangelical priorities onto what we're talking about with collective sin. So I think what one of the things that's happening here is that we hear like a oh, collective sin or societal sin or something, and we immediately think if I sign, if I agree that this is a thing, then I am saying that I am personally complicit in the way that I would be personally yes. complicit if I like punched you in the face. Right. Because we are so conditioned to think of sin as primarily personal. And if I admit that, then that means I might be judged by God. Well, of course, exactly. Exactly. And my whole thing is that, like, I'm not going to be judged by God because I'm in. Yes. Yes. I'm washing the blood, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So there's a couple ways to go here. And we again, I'll give you a choice of two. (laughs) Uh, One is I have a one way of kind of thinking about this, which is that systemic forces might make particular sins more mm. likely for us. That's Absolutely. one way of 
maybe we could just stipulate that that's one way of combining these things and move on. Just mm-hmm. so just anything to say about that. That seems like yeah, a good model. Sure. Sure. Okay. Then the second one is thinking about this Old Testament stuff and sort of God judging the nations and whatnot. This this ties in. I think this came up with Jason too a little bit. But God is apparently okay with visiting consequences on members of a group that mm-hmm. are not particularly responsible for the sins of that group. Mm-hmm. And what it makes me think of at the psychological level is that we really want to believe that our piety, our righteousness Mm -hmm. will save us from suffering. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where the rubber hits the road for your dad, for instance, is like, and I'm not, you know, denigrating him or anything. I think this is natural of like, oh, I've been doing it well. And Mm -hmm. therefore it's kind of a naive prosperity gospel mm-hmm. of like there is a kind of formula here and you you, you kind of get this formula in proverbs if you read it on its plain sense mm-hmm. then it gets uh, knocked down in uh, mm-hmm. ecclesiastes of course mm-hmm. but uh if you just read proverbs it's like i was righteous good things are coming mm-hmm. to me and my family and mm-hmm. so wait i'm in i'm a part of this big evil system you're saying but mm-hmm. i'm not choosing it so why mm-hmm. should i have to get the consequences of yeah. the the evils of this system well God apparently is okay with you being with the consequences being visited on you, whether or not you were mm-hmm. the architect of the right. injustice. Right. Right. And so I think that's worth thinking about of this kind of we're not guaranteed to not suffer. Right. Basically right. is the takeaway of that. Right, right, right. What I really like about what you just said is that it, it recognizes the importance of the biblical uh, scriptures for evangelicals. And does sort of a, a twist there with them where you're saying, well, actually, we know how highly you prioritize the Bible. But do you know that within your Bible, you also have this real strong um, accountability and participation of the individual within societal judgment? No, I agree. I agree yeah, with that. that's interesting. So then, OK, that's let's move on from sin and go to uh, evil or death and suffering. So mm-hmm. now evil, this one is going to be probably hardest for you and I, because I think that we are of the stripe of thinker that is not prone to positing like Satan as an entity with a mind, yeah. demons flying around with individual yeah. minds and wills. So I tend to think of evil in a pretty personalist, personal kind of a way, or yeah. I guess to the extent that I think of evil as cosmic, it's just sort of like anything that's not like the kingdom of heaven uh, yeah. But for instance, somebody with like a more robust demonology yeah. w- w- might have a, an easier time thinking about sort of the systemic nature of evil itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I in some ways, I'm probably not the best person to talk to about this one because I I tend to kind of go the Augustinian route of seeing evil as or evil as like a lack of good as sort yeah. of like the privation of good. Right. So I don't see a real need theologically to posit evil as a personal entity, like as a, as a Satan that exists in that exists in the universe and is actively trying to destroy your life. In some ways, I think what I end up doing is conflating sin and evil a bit. In some ways, though, I end up conflating sin and evil, but I think in my, it sometimes, it's especially in issues around like systemic problems, it is easier, I think, for people to recognize the existence of systemic evil than systemic sin. Because yes, it might just be yeah, linguistic. Yeah. 
But I think that like sin implies often for many of us, for better or for worse, many of us have uh, a sort of instinctual association with sin and personal choice. Whereas evil, it's easier for us to recognize it as existing outside of ourselves, or even if it's not a positive sort of entity that exists in the world, we recognize that it, that, that what we, the, the language that we use for evil, for evil um, does not imply that we have directly caused that evil, like at a, at a personal level, right? One of the turning points for me and sort of like realizing like what systemic racism even was or how like to even think about myself in relationship to a larger group or society came, I think, in my undergraduate psychology class when the professor had us get up and basically we went, we just ran like experiments on ourselves in in groups and out groups and things. And we started to see firsthand how we all cognitively, like very naturally, um, sort of just responded in discriminatory and biased ways, like as a matter of fact, even though none of us had like had it out for one another or even value neutral, like even seemingly like value neutral sorts of um, tasks, we found ourselves discriminating, choosing, having in groups and out groups. And, and, and it was a fascinating and freeing experience for me because I started to realize that sometimes I don't, I'm not personally complicit. I can be personally participate in a larger thing that we may, might call an evil force or an evil kind of um, phenomenon in the world without actually personally sinning, right? Hmm. So, so I think sometimes it, it can good, be yeah. easier to get your head around the um, sort of complicitness in, in evil, but in a way that it's more difficult with sin. I think it can be actually really freeing if we start to adopt a collective sort of understanding of participation in, in, in evil, because it's that we recognize that it doesn't mean that we're awful people if we're complicit in these larger societal evils. It doesn't mean that we're awful, unlovable, terrible people who are out to harm one another all the time. You can be complicit without being like a personal personification of evil yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, and that's gonna, I'm gonna come back to that, being complicit without being personally evil. The final thing that we're gonna talk about, which is um, really kind of trying to re-story mm-hmm. for, away from an individual lens to a more systemic lens so that we're not simply flogging our backs yep. constantly. Like I, I think there is, um, from a psychological angle, I think sometimes what you see with the anti-racism uh, rhetoric is that the answer is for white people to continually self-flagellate mm-hmm. just indefinitely because mm-hmm. then at least that shows that they know their privilege. My, my worry about that is it's not sustainable. It's not, it's mm-hmm. not mentally sustainable. It's, you know, it's not psychologically mm-hmm. sustainable. That, that doesn't create in the end healthy people who are working towards justice. It just creates like neurotic people. But pin in that. I think your way of saying how like, oh, it's just the in-group stuff. Like my cohort in my uh, doctoral program, we have a class that we are taking with the cohort above us. So the, they're one year ahead. And just the fact that we're in that group together, I'm noticing all these things I'm doing. Like we're texting each other jokingly <laughs> about like how much better we are, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, I, you know, and like I'm wanting people from my own cohort when we go into breakout rooms on Zoom. You know, it, and like that is not I'm not choosing that. I don't really know these people. They're mm-hmm. great. I'm sure statistically they're just as likely to be great as the people in my cohort. Mm-hmm. But it is just automatic that mm-hmm. we just have a built in mm-hmm. preference for our own tribe. Things that we know, things that yeah. are 
familiar to us as opposed right. to things that are unfamiliar. Right. And especially when there's any kind of line drawn cohort 11 versus cohort 10. Well, mm-hmm. now it just activates that tribalism, right? Yep. That's interesting. The The uh, example I was thinking of would be an example of a mixing of the two. So mm-hmm. there is personal uh, evil and sin and also systemic sin and evil. And the example I'm thinking of is choose a struggling African nation, let's say Somalia, mm-hmm. and think about food shortages. So most mm-hmm. people who have read about famine uh, mm-hmm. are aware of the of the piece of data that says actually the world creates enough food. The problem with famines is always one of bureaucracy, of uh, distribution of food, the will to get the food to the people who need it. There is sufficient Mm -hmm. food. Mm -hmm. So we look at Somalia. We say, oh, look, there's all this corruption. The president and his cabinet uh, are taking all these bribes and enriching themselves. So there's obviously a personal element of evil and sin there, right? So they are doing something wrong. But if we zoom back and we say, what is the history of Somalia, a colonized country, such mm-hmm. that now at this point, in order to get ahead in life, you have to take bribes, yep. essentially, because their economy is so crappy. So then now we've added an element of system that if mm-hmm. that system weren't there, those leaders would be less likely to take bribes. Yes. You know, I'm sure governors in America yes. yeah. uh, take bribes sometimes, I'm sure, but we don't have famines because governors are taking bribes mm-hmm. about food distribution, right? Yeah. Like. Because we have less of that history. So that's another way of of a a blending as opposed to separating them out. Exactly. I love that. I love that. And I think what you're getting at here is that this this sort of this is this is something that I've been playing around with as well, that recognizing the existence, the reality of systemic evil, systemic racism, systemic whatever manifestation of evil that takes can be the most freeing move. It can be so freeing because it like frees you up to not need to be defensive anymore, to not need to be like um, constantly proving that you're not a horrible person or something. And it allows you to then just go about the work, the doing the, doing the work, doing the, having the difficult conversations, learning, exploring, like meeting new people. Like, like it, it frees you to think about your, um, your, your role in a completely new way. Well, you just never get to if you're only ever defensive. I think racism is sort of like, um, it's like, it's like a, it's like a swear word sometimes. Like people, like racism feels so extreme to, to a lot of people that they're like, oh my God, don't say the R word, right? Like, how, don't you dare call me a racist. It's easier sometimes for us to talk about other sins that we know are both societal and involve personal complicit. And so, like, um, think of gambling. Gambling is a perfect example because uh, there are systemic forces that encourage gambling. And you can, we could, we could start getting into sort of like the way that casinos work, the way that that, that, that sort of like there are psychological manipulations taking they place. Add, they pump in oxygen. Yep. Uh, or, yeah. or talking about lottery tickets. Some exactly. people are poor enough that they feel yes. like a lottery is their way out. Yep. And so that yep. encourages them to play the lottery, which then of course is just a tax. Yes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, I often tend to want to contextualize every wrongdoing, every like personal wrongdoing that anyone else does um, within the context, well, contextualize it essentially to within, within um, sort of this really complex system of systems of systems um, that and then they, they exist say, in. 
we're at a party, Sarah. Cut I know exactly. That's exactly what happens. It's <laughs> like, I have tried too. I mean, and you have to be, well, this is okay. Well, this is actually an interesting point because you do have to be pastorally sensitive, right? So if I were to show up, show, show up at one of the protests right now and start trying to explain to them why my racist uncle is the way he is, they wouldn't want to hear it. They're like, we don't care. It's not the time <laughs> like, for it. Yeah. This is not the time for it. You don't need to be defending your racist uncle's background, right? Like, like that's not the point. Like, anymore but if i were talking to my racist uncle then i would have a much more compassionate compassionate and complex and like contextualized assessment of how he came to be the way that he is right like i can see the million and one factors that he had no part in including in his life um that have gone into him thinking and feeling and experiencing the world in the way that he does yeah uh (laughs) on facebook recently i have and twitter i have been putting out a call to people to my right to say, hey, message me privately. Mm-hmm. I know that social media comment threads are, don't feel particularly safe for you right now mm-hmm. if you're not already on board with yeah. this messaging, uh, and they're not. And so no judgment. Let's just chat. And uh, one, one very liberal Facebook friend of mine was like, I'm so glad you're taking care of the right people right now. And I'm just like, okay, you know <laughs> Ouch. what? Ouch. Like, <laughs> I, I would like them to actually vote the same way that you and I will vote. Um, yeah. And I, I don't care. I guess I'm just being pastoral. That's a good word for it. Anyway, that frustrated me so much, yep. that comment that, that that person put. But speaking of contextual, so mm-hmm. this is another – this is a way directly into theology. So mm-hmm. when we put all the context around, then we get things like contextual theologies. Mm-hmm. Jason and I talked a little bit about – Black liberation theology, which is a subset of liberation theology more generally, mm-hmm. um, feminist theology, queer mm-hmm. theology. These are contextual theologies mm-hmm. where basically someone uh, brings the text back up or you know the Bible or maybe some formative uh, creeds and other other type of other texts like that. And then they approach it from the context of where they're coming from. What do you see as the connection between uh, what we were just talking about in terms of contextualizing things and that move in contextual theology? Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of a shift. I think think for me, it has a lot to do with recognizing or redefining what is normative. Just as in American history, we we have essentially put a box around the straight white male Christian as being normative. Everything else is uh, othered in one way or another. Women, people of any people of color, like any anyone who's just not like a straight gay people. Um, there's just um, you know anything that alters from that norm, and so that's been elevated as normative. In a similar fashion, this has happened in the academy in theology for sure. Systematic theology for 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 like all of its history has essentially been the norm, the core. Of systematic theology has been defined by by straight white men, Christian men, straight white Christian men, um, and so there's a real parallel there. And there's actually really heated debates right now going on, um, at least over here in the UK. I think in some ways the American conversation has moved on a bit about whether or not we should even use language about like contextual theology. Like, does contextual theology just mean fringe theology or sort of like 
fluffy theology or, or accessorized. Exactly. Exactly. Because, so the question is yeah. who gets to define the boundaries, who gets to draw the boundaries around what is normative and who gets to define the core and the periphery. And so this happens at our theology conferences here in the UK, um, or we have what I'll call old school theologians, essentially saying traditional historical ph- philosophical theology as done by straight white men is what is normative. It is what we should be prioritizing in our churches and in our seminaries and everything else is, is, is nice and adds perspective perspective and depth and color, hmm. no pun intended, but it does not actually shift the center. And we'll include a couple people of color and m- women on our board of advisors to make sure that we're signaling the right moves, right. but um, the, the decision makers and the kind of key stakeholders are not going to be anything but the norm. There's actually a real tension right now. It, it, it actually, I find it cra- a little bit crazy making, to be honest. It's like, it's really frustrating to find yourself in these conversations where you're saying, no, 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 no. But like what we're saying here is actually that this this experience, this lived experience that you're calling contextual, marginal, is what you mean there. There's a real problem when you say that that is contextual or marginal. When you when you when you when you label it in that way, you automatically um, define the trajectory of the conversation as something that it will always be other than normative. And there's the question of: Are we just pretending there's no context for the straight yeah. white men? Exactly. Like, exactly it. I think yeah. Anselm is a great example, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you look at, uh, I forget which, which atonement theory is his, but the one uh, where it's like you're sinning against a perfect God mm-hmm. and so or an infinite God. So the punishment would be infinite. And that's basically based on a uh, mm-hmm. judicial model of 13th century Europe, where mm-hmm. if a peasant steals a deer from another mm-hmm. peasant – Versus a peasant steals a deer from the lord of the manor, mm-hmm. then the penalty is higher, right? Yeah. So yeah. that is a context that came mm-hmm. into Anselm's theological reasoning. And mm-hmm. it's a context that we no longer find applicable to ourselves. We actually think we have better models of justice than that, than mm-hmm. he did. Now, there, there's something to be said that like, well, maybe the greatest minds, even though they all had to be white men, because those are the only people who were allowed to do theology mm-hmm. in some mm-hmm. sense. Maybe in some sense they have uncovered most of the primary questions that like any smart person would uncover. Mm -hmm. I'm more amenable to something like that. But then I would want to say, now let's tackle those questions being mindful of context and mindful of their context as they uncover them. I mean, but I think a feminist theologian, for example, I just say feminist theologian because it's the context, it's the contextual theology that I'm the most familiar with. But a a feminist theologian would say even the questions themselves are framed and defined by an embodied male thinking in the way that an embodied male does, right? So, I mean, there's some real gendered, you can get into debates about gendered cognition yeah, yeah. and stuff. But, but, I mean, but, I'm thinking of, okay, now maybe I'm wrong here, but I'm thinking of a question like uh, the the struggle between omnipotence. Yeah. And, well, it, yep, you've already, right? you've, uh, yeah, feminists would not agree with that. That is the question <laughs> we're asking. Huh. Yeah, okay. exactly. And it's, I think, I mean, you see this, you see this at every level of theology. You see this in practical theology. You see this in systematic and philosophical theology, the sort of the omnis most feminist theologians are not going to give a shit about. And in fact, they're going to say you are asking all the wrong questions. If you inhabit the space of connection with God, you are going to be discussing this in completely different ways. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. And I mean, part of it is just sort of the hyper-rationalistic, like, I, 
like post enlightenment um, way of just like having intellectual discourse that has framed this, these these debates as well. But that discourse is one that has excluded the female experience. What I mean, and the women who do who do participate in these conversations usually try and adopt the language of the men that are around them. Hmm. But um, and I'm just using female like I'm just using feminist theology as an yeah, example but here. Rinse repeat How for the other yeah. Exactly. You think that the questions you're asking are normative and standard and any thinking person would stumble on them. But that is exactly the thing that like contextual theologians would disagree with, that the questions themselves need to be rethought. I remember being like eight years old, a little bit older, like 10 years old, and reading the way that the Bible talked about needing to like hate your body and like pride being like the chief sin and all this stuff. And like, like I just remember reading the Bible, like like, as a, as like a, like when I was going through puberty probably and being like, I feel like the Bible was definitely written by men. Like, all of it because (laughs) I, this is not my experience. Like I don't suffer from pride. I really hate myself or, you know what I mean? And it's like, it's telling me to hate my body, but I already hate my body. You know, it's like they're the the, the female experience in like the sort of like women would never have written the Bible in the way that it's been written. (laughs) It's just, it would never have happened. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I'm a little out of my depth here. I'm super interested, but I don't have as much experience. So I'll just acknowledge that. But it, it actually leads to the one other thing I want to talk about with you before we get to that final restoring, recontextualizing our own place in the story. And that came up with uh, Jason as well, this emotion versus reason thing. Mm-hmm. So in his context, we were talking about black preaching uh, and how I noticed this in myself when I was you know 15 to 25 of like, oh, this seems emotional, which I think means it's bad. Uh, it, it means it's not rational. It's not logical. Mm-hmm. We're going to get a, we're going to get away uh, from the truth here. If we follow mm-hmm. these, this stuff, I want to ask you, cause you do a lot of work around like cognition and brains mm-hmm. and neuroscience, the new data, the new uh, neuroscientific consensus is that emotion and reason mm-hmm. are far more connected than Descartes yep. would have had us believe. So yep. why don't you just riff on that a little bit from that perspective? Yeah, just like, I mean, if we, if there's any sort of consensus at all coming out of cognitive science, affect theory, actually affect theory is really an interesting field for anyone that want, is interested in this, con- this, this sort of topic. Um, affect is the psychological term for emotions. and Well, no, yeah, it's or, more complex. They do. Well, they refuse to say that. They refuse okay. to say that. But I just mean that, that you, that's a shorthand version of affect yeah. is like your, how your body is presenting itself. Exactly. So it's, it's physically. like your affect, yeah. your affect is about how your whole body, body person is experiencing and communicating to the world. It's like, it's affective, but it's not just like, oh, I feel angry or happy or sad. It's more complex than that, but it involves emotion, but it's not only emotion. Yeah, no, but so, so if we're learning anything, it's that reason and emotion are not dis- are not disconnected from each other and if anything we end up misattributing things to being reason when actually there's a strong there's a strong length of one's emotion um, built in there and also that there is a sort of productive kind of cooperation between like what we would call emotion and reason again i'm like talking about these things as if they're different things um but but they're actually far more intertwined um and that like 
whether or not you're conscious of it, whether or not any of us are conscious of it, like our whole body is involved in, in processing our experiences of the world, making assessments about the world and evaluating which, which future actions we should take, um, determining which future actions we should take. And it, this involves a, a prioritization of emotion often and in a sort of uh, what we would call reasoning process, more analytic reasoning process after the fact often. I mean, there are, there's technical language that we could use to describe this, but, but these, these, what we call emotion and reason are not nearly as disconnected as we historically thought about them. I can't remember the exact example, but I am in a cognition and emotion class right now Mm -hmm. in my doctoral program. And there is a study that showed that people who are missing a certain part of their brain that Mm -hmm. affects their emotional, uh, basically ability to feel certain emotions that other people feel. I don't remember which emotion it was Mm -hmm. actually can't do certain kinds of rational projects. So there is a, there's an actual, the same part of Mm -hmm. the brain, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, don't quote me on which part it is, Mm -hmm. is doing both. They are Mm -hmm. like, they are literally connected, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, neurologically connected, but just draw a line for us from that to then theology or lived, uh, spirituality, lived church experience. Oh my gosh. Well, those are two different things, right? Lived church experience is often very different than lived theology. I mean, to, which is kind system, of what we're talking about, though, right? I like, know, I know. And the contextual theologians are trying to yeah. bring the two closer together, yeah. Because actually, maybe what you th- you think what you need to do mm-hmm. with your parishioners is to get them to understand the, uh, this mm-hmm. theological concept. But actually, maybe yeah. what you need to do is get them to like feel okay yep. trusting God right. in their body or something. Well, exactly, like that. and this is exactly what a feminist theologian would say. Like, this is a perfect example of how most. Okay, I, I, it's probably it's, this is going to be a caricature, but I think it's a generalization that is borne out. In fact, um, most academic theologians are not going to be Pentecostals. Okay, just for example, most of them are going to probably find themselves most at home um, if they're working in like a kind of like a mainline divinity school or seminary. Most of them will be most most at home in some sort of like mainline progressivist church that will not have a whole lot of what we would call embodied like an affective worship experience. Yeah. Or it, it probably won't. It will not encourage spontaneous outbursts of emotion or passion. Yeah, they'll um, be the frozen chosen. Right. They will be the frozen chosen. They yeah, will right. be the frozen chosen. And every once in a while, they might incorporate like a song with a little bit more syncopation or something. And then they think they'll be living on the edge. But for the most part, <laughs> it's like they're very, they want, they prefer things to be very constrained and they prefer to deal with their emotions internally and not express them. Well, if they express them to anybody, it would be in a very safe and private context and certainly not happening in a corporate setting. And that is what is most comfortable for them. But that is often wildly out of touch with the experience of people in. In, in many evangelical churches and certainly in charismatic Pentecostal churches and absolutely in black churches, you see a very different thing happening where uh, the sort of like the heart, the soul of their spirituality is rooted in this affective connection with God. And they are experiencing something incredibly real. It is like far more neurobiologically powerful than anything the frozen chosen are doing because there is theology in what they're saying they're, they're, the, the, the the words of the songs the the texts that they're engaging with the the, the the sermons themselves are they're they're soaked in theology and there's this real fallacy that if you're showing emotion you're not being a good theologian or something um, and yeah. this is this is why I'm always impressed with those theologians who are willing to kind of like out themselves there's this uh, Pentecostal theologian um, Amos Young. Is that fuller? What's interesting is that like 
people often hear Pentecostal theologian and they think that's like a, an oxymoron on source. Like, well, how can you be Pentecostal and also be, you know, <laughs> and also be a proper academic theologian? And, and, and people are, are, are so misguided on this. But I think a parallel thing is happening in, in black churches. They have just nailed it. They know exactly what it means to, to bring their whole selves to God and to their, and to their worshiping community. And those communities are often so much tighter as communities as well than anything that happens in like a, in a, in a progressive mainline church. The sort of the intimacy among them is, is striking. It's also really interesting uh, to put into conversation with this, the statistic from, this is October, so a month before the election, 2016, I think it's Lifeway Research, because mm-hmm. they have a nice like four or five point theological definition of evangelical. Mm-hmm. And on their version of evangelical, so this is a better one than self-identified, right? Uh, white, actual evangelicals, I, I actually forget the exact number. It was maybe 80%, maybe 70, 75% mm-hmm. uh, were for Trump in October. Mm-hmm. And black evangelicals with the same theological mm-hmm. beliefs were 90% for Hillary and they were against Trump. Yep. And so you might think hmm, yeah. there might be something to a more <laughs> affective emotion-laden worship experience mm-hmm. that leads one to analytical truths about, for yeah. instance, these two candidates or right. something like that. Now, yeah, I, you know, and people can disagree on I, candidates. It's complicated. Two parties yeah. is complicated. But as a general indicator yeah. of the sort of religious yeah. health of the communities. Yeah. The theological myth that is rife in, 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 in academia and actually outside of the, outside of the academy as well. The myth is that, that, that your emotion will always be just emotion and that will never lead to anything that has truth content or truth value to it. When, I mean, obviously just the opposite is true. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I could say a lot more about it, but it's just, it's a huge, it's a huge myth. There are other wrinkles though. I think there's like more, conspiracy theory stuff in Pentecostal circles than other circles. Mm-hmm. So it, none of this is like a, a clear 100% better. Mm-hmm. There's trade-offs and, and whatnot. But at, at any rate, let's move to this final question, which to me is the most interesting practical, you know, in terms of answering the question, what's next? So mm-hmm. I recognize this systemic injustice. What's next for me at a faith level? I I, mm-hmm. I feel the most life in the question or in the in the approach of restoring, recontextual, yeah. reframing this. So yeah. here's how I'm basically seeing it and how I said it to Jason, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. So the solution can't be continual guilt and repentance any more than it could be for you at mm-hmm. four to nine years old, praying the prayer every single night and adding every little addendum. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can't be. Uh, social media posts every week for the rest of my life saying, here's a new way I learned that I have privilege. Here's a new thing. I, you know what I mean? Like it can't be, that just can't be the end game. It's, it's necessary as part of the repentance and really conversion experience on this topic. But in the long run, what's Mm -hmm. the way to stay engaged? My gut is that we have to retell the story in a sustainable way and place ourselves in it we talk about heuristics mm-hmm. and basically cognitive m- mental energy saving things that we do, which mm-hmm. are often negative. That's the tribalism we were talking about. Mm-hmm. But these can also be positive. We save energy when we don't have to think about driving. Mm-hmm. I can be driving the car and having a conversation with you and I don't actually have to think about 
avoiding hitting pedestrians. Like there's value in me having learned to drive and it being an automatic process. So what I'm trying to get at is like, I would like it to be where automatically when these things come up, I go, oh yes, I see that. And, and I already know here's my place in that I'm in this privileged class. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, that means X. That means mm-hmm. when these things happen, this is what we do. And that's because of our faith. And this mm-hmm. is how we join with those who are suffering, whatever. So you could fill in the details. It's pretty open how mm-hmm. you would do this recontextualizing. But that's that's my gut is that mm-hmm. that's what we need to do. And and we are a part of a larger story where we've gotten the long end of the stick and this is what we're moving toward. And this is my role in mm-hmm. that larger movement of which I'm a part. Mm-hmm. How does that strike you? Yeah. So, I mean, ironically, I, I think here I actually do want to come back to the individual. Um, I think that the resistance to doing the sort of thing that you're describing is often because people fear an obliteration of the self. They yeah. fear that who they are is going to be undermined, erased, that they will not themselves, that this, 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 narr- this new narrative that they're being confronted with leaves no space for them no space for them to be who they are. They don't no space for them to be valued. And um, I mean, imagine, you know, you're, you're a privileged white man and you're, you're, you're essentially being told that, no, you have to decenter yourself. You don't get to be the center of this narrative anymore. And that can be extreme. I mean, that is just going to be extremely threatening for, for, for people. And I love the way that you talk about recognizing the importance of you having a particular role in a larger kind of mission or narrative or story. And I think one of the keys for me, and I think about this particularly like with loved ones as well, is like trying to find ways to understand my own story and also like a personal connection with God going back to the faith thing. And how do we understand having a personal connection with God, an actual relationship with a God who knows and loves us like individually? How do I understand me having my own like story and narrative that is not only going to be damning for me and connect that to something larger, right? My own salvation, for example, whatever that means, connect my own salvation to the salvation of the community or the world or whatever, or how do I, how do I think about my own role as a privileged white person and and recognize the potential that I impact that I could have on creating good, creating forceful change in the world without obliterating my own story. Right. So, so, so when we reframe our story as sort of participating in something larger than ourselves, right. I think we can kind of, there's got to be a way to have the best of both worlds, right. There has to be a way of maintaining a recognition of our individuality, our own histories, our own stories that we didn't have any, any say over whatsoever. And, 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 and recognizing our own sort of situatedness in the world and still feeling personal personally called into a larger narrative, into a larger story or a new plot twist, right? And and recognizing that like we are not being personally threatened when we realize that the overall narrative that we're being called to recognize is a little bit different than we thought it might be. And that we can still be individuals even as we're soaked up and brought up into the collective, into the into the these these waves of societal change. Do you mind getting a little autobiographical here? Sure. Like in, in, to the extent that you have done some of this mm-hmm. recontextualizing, restorying yourself, yeah. like, like what do you see your role at? Like, have you made yeah. progress toward this goal that I'm saying of having it become a bit more um, habit and less, mm-hmm. less mentally exhausting and yet right. in line with the values? Right. Yes and no. I mean, yes, to the extent that I 
have noticed a lot of development in the way that I personally engage with people of different backgrounds and traditions and cultures and colors. But that's because of that, that's actually because of my, 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 my story, right? So I've spent years in Bangladesh and Pakistan and in extremely multicultural kind of situations in schools. And, 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 and so I've noticed a real development in that way. Where, my tension point, I think, is probably similar to yours. Where I, where I don't really know where to go next yet is, is, is translating sort of this complete buy-in that I feel or that I experience. Like, I'm like, yeah, I'm on board. I am on board for a lot of things that are um, that I that I that I'm that I'm seeing that I'm reading, and I would love to be a part of it in an active way, other than voting, and other than sort of um, having one-on-one conversations with people who are actually willing to have a conversation, um, like a constructive conversation with me about this. I really struggle to know how to know exactly what to do. I'm I'm very aware of not wanting to be like the the, the white person championing um, <laughs> black causes or something like on their behalf or something. You know, I want to create space for them to you know to define the conversation in the way that they feel that they need to. And also, I'm very aware of I, I'm very resistant to t- sort of like token token expressions of resistance right on social media. And I am so tempted every single freaking day to get into like heated debates with people I know I could totally intellectually dominate. That's the worst ones. Like the ones you're like, I have so many facts. I have so many facts for you. I have so many analyses of the, every sentence that you're saying right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I just pull myself back because I'm like, this is like I, the, nothing good would come of me engaging with this person right now. They don't want to have a conversation about this. I know that they don't. And I know the way they've you me like they think of me as like this like liberal heathen like i know that nothing good would come of me engaging with this but i still feel responsible to engage where i can and it's like the the reality is that people like you and me often are our our friend circles our kind of communities already think like us yeah so i don't know I, i i do not i honestly do not know like where to like how to be helpful how to get personally engaged in something larger than 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 what i've been engaged in so no answers well, <laughs> well, great. I'll be a little. I'll get a little autobiographical. I, I'm in an interesting mode with this now, where I think I haven't known for a while what our like economic and financial role should be. Right. But but for a while that was okay because I contextualized myself as well. I have podcasts, and I make an effort to occasionally. Uh, at least to the extent that it doesn't, you know, I do episodes on, on racial issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that with Depolarize. We did that with Reconstruct. I've done it with You Have Permission. But now there's a robust patron community and mm-hmm. the the podcast is now a part-time job, yep. which I'm so grateful for. I, I love that I actually get paid some money to do it. But that means it is no longer me donating my time and resources mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to the cause. I'm not donating yeah. anymore. I'm yeah. now being compensated for it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, and I, I had a, a very brief stint doing some volunteering at like homework help mm-hmm. at a church with uh, poor children in yeah. the city next to ours. And I loved it. But now I'm in grad school and I just don't have time. Uh, newborn, two jobs, grad school, can't do mm-hmm. it. Uh, so what is my role? Is it a thing that I postpone until I have a license and I mm-hmm. dedicate five hours a week of of my valuable skill to mm-hmm. people, you know, in communities who can't afford it? Is it you know, I don't know, but I don't want I don't want it to be nebulous forever. Yeah. I, I, and I don't think that 
I don't think the cause is helped by everyone just thinking I will do better and yeah. leaving it at that. Like, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you could beat yourself up about doing better, but like, let's get, let's yeah. really journal, tangible. pray yeah. about it, talk in our churches about it. Like, right. Let's let's figure out the role we play, you know, and yeah. then that can, of yeah. course, be changed. Right. And God could yeah. call you to more or less or, or whatever yeah. if you're burning out. But that's where I'm that's where I want to see movement. And yeah, I, exactly. I know it's early, I, yeah. especially with George Floyd. Yeah. It's still early. It's only been a little over two weeks. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just the raw kind of beginning here. But already mm -hmm. I can tell like I'm anxious to like help myself and other people figure out what the long game is here mm -hmm. to, to, you know, to be a part of it and not be burnt out. I'm almost certain that there have to be different roles for different people. Right. Oh, exactly. And, exactly. and like that there are some people who are just going to be better at some things than at others. And also our context sort of makes things, certain options more um, available to us. You have a platform, for example. Sure. Um, um, certain things are more difficult for me because I'm, I don't actually live in America. So like me right. participating in American conversations can sometimes be like really restricted to social media, which is like really unfortunate. And um, the least effective. <laughs> and the least effective. Exactly. I'm just like Probably. talking to myself yeah. here. Like we are all preaching to the yeah. choir but the the but like i think i have short-term and long-term kind of like visions for this the short-term i think is that like there are a lot of elections that are going to be happening in november right we have a presidential election and we have a whole bunch of local elections and state elections yeah. and when we talk about police brutality for example or in sort of like the people the actual people who can make changes at a local state Criminal national reform. level yeah exactly, exactly. Right. a lot yep. of these sort of systemic changes require the right leaders to be in 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 the yep. right place at the right time True. and so i do find myself being like obscenely like obscenely focused on the narrow part of the population that might be persuadable to vote other than they otherwise normally would have in november so it's like i am i don't want to call them like swing voters but like there's like a narrow part of the population that i think you can actually have a conversation with and could be shifted between now and November. So yeah. like between the now and middle, November, the middle 15% yes, or so. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. It's like the more like, so here's, here's, here's the thing. This is going to sound terrible, but like, I really wish that some of these, like some of these like social uprising, these sort of like almost magical, mysterious kind of movements that, that just like spring up at the right time in the right place. I wish so much that the elections would happen like tomorrow because this know, thing right? yeah. happens every single it. freaking time where it's like there's a school shooting or something and everybody's on board with yeah. gun control for three days. And then it's like the election happens six months later and nobody cares about gun control anymore. So like there is this timing problem. And like, so if we can just keep like this, a sustained focus on racial issues, like between now and November and be like relentless all the way through November, then I think that would be a huge feat. I don't know if it's like cognitively even possible because it's emotionally intense well, as well. But but that's that's kind of what I'm talking about. So like, let's say you yeah. thought that was the goal. There's still another question of like, and what's the best thing for me to do? And for instance, you might decide I will make myself available to the 100 people I know that fit that 15 percent mm -hmm. middle and I'll reach out to them individually and let them know I'm available. Yeah. Maybe that's your role. I don't know. Yeah. You're not in the States. You can't go to a march. Yeah. Um, you know, I, have a perfect I, I don't example, know. Like just one quick example of this. My um, like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there has been like more across the political spectrum kind of like energy 
around this particular moment in history than this oh, there yeah. ever has in an issue of police brutality in the past, right? So there's like more bipartisan like that kind of support true. for for police reform now yep. than there ever has. My brother, he almost went to work for the Republican Party. I hope he never listens to this podcast. But like he um he's I love him so much, but he's he can be pretty he can be pretty conservative and pretty Republican at times. He and his wife though have been so outspoken and progressive on this issue. They've been participating in marches in our hometown and they are like they have been like leading the charts they have been and here's the thing they are like the only people on my social media accounts that I actually personally know who are having actual dialogues with people who are definitely MAGA hat wearing like Trump supporters like straight up saying like all lives matter like it's just like it's like they 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 are more involved in this conversation than I am because they have surrounded themselves with the different group of people they would probably still call themselves republicans but like they are on board with this issue and it's like i think there is like those sorts of people like they're they're the change agents in their communities right so it's like if you can like target those people who who are persuadable then they in turn can like target people who are in their spheres that i don't have access to because they don't trust me you know yeah so again context um Mm -hmm. well let's leave it there Really great conversation, Sarah. Thank you so much for your time. And again, of course, thanks to Jason for his. Um, yeah, that was great. We'll have you back on soon, I'm sure, for something else. Something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Again, we've got those two recent sermons by Jason in the show notes, so please check those out. Um, Thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing these conversations on very short notice. And folks, he is available for podcast editing work. His email is in the show notes next to his name. Next week will either be these testimonies of people's own kind of awakening to systemic injustice, or it will be a incredible conversation about the quagmire of modern international missions, uh, which actually has quite a bit of relatedness to what we are kind of going through in this country right now after uh, George Floyd's death. So look forward to those. And uh, yeah, patreon.com slash Dan Coke. All that stuff is in the show notes. Email me with questions. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you guys next week. <laughs>